find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, and brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Hi, listeners. This is Season 3, Episode 14, brought to you by Lifetree at Paying and Ridiculous Attention to Jesus.com. It's just the name of the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with a .com at the end of it. And if I say it enough, it won't sound like the long sentence it is, uh, or maybe it will. By the way, the, the, the culprit behind the long, long title of our podcast is, of course, the Beckinator. The genius of marketing that the Beckinator is, she created the longest URL for a website in the history of websites. So she's crazy like a fox. So my name is Rick. I'm author of The Jesus-Centered Life, the upcoming book Spiritual Grit, which is coming out in about a month, or maybe a little less than a month now when you're listening to this. So that's exciting. And I'm the editor of The Jesus-Centered Bible. So we'll tell you a little bit more about uh, the launch week for Spiritual Grit in just a little bit, and how you can get involved in helping to be sort of a, a armchair missionary. You can... You can impact the lives of a lot of people just by doing a few simple things to help others learn about spiritual grit. And along the way, you get to be part of a community of people that are already having a lot of fun uh, wrestling with issues around spiritual grit. And just today, we uh, gave that group of people uh, the introduction to the book before it's released, and we're going to be giving them... Next week, the week that you're listening to this, we're, we're going to put the whole copy of the book, the digital version of the book, out there for this launch team so they can read it in advance. So tell you a little bit more about that later. But we're in the midst of a little mini-series here that we're calling Heresies About Jesus That We Commonly Embrace. And we use the word heresy because I'm sure to get your attention if we say something's a heresy. So these are just really things that, we've, that are like common in the in the church world are common in the world of those who follow Jesus. They're commonly embraced things that seem like truths, but actually there's some kind of toxicity to them. There's something a little bit poisonous about them. There's something a little bit Trojan horse like them. They they look like a gift, but they're actually not. So I'd like today to focus on one of my hot buttons, a phrase that is commonly used in the church all the time but I believe is fundamentally contrary to the heart of Jesus, and we don't recognize it when we say it. So it goes something like this. I'm sure you have heard somebody say this in church, or maybe these words have come out of your own mouth. It's highly likely that they have. It goes something like this. I just want God to use me. Or, well, God is using me to blank. It's that insidious verb in the middle of that statement, the, the word use, that I have a problem with. It's it's not just a fetish <laughs> that I don't like the word use, but when we talk about God, I want God to use me, we're really describing uh, what kind of relationship we have with Him. And our words are powerful. And to frame our relationship with God as someone who is used by Him, it's just not the gospel. Before we get too deep into this, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a quick kind of comparison, a metaphoric comparison. So I have a daughter named Lucy, 
who's in college. She's in her freshman year of college. And sometimes I do things with Lucy to—that we we do things together, sort of ministry things together, because Lucy is a remarkable, challenging person— to me, she's she's been involved in special needs ministry for five or six years. Uh, she's just a challenging person. In fact, at some point, I think I'm going to have Lucy be on the podcast for an episode when I can figure out the best way to shoehorn her in so that you'll get to meet her. But um, if I said if I called up Lucy today and said, "Hey, uh, for next week's small group gathering in our home, when you're home for Easter, I would love." to use you to do something in the group, to help lead the group. I would never say to my own daughter, I want to use you for something. I would, I would use different language. I would use relational language. I would use intimate language. I would use connecting language. But I wouldn't use the language of a slave owner to a slave, for instance, or a person to an object, for instance. So this sounds like a little thing, but it's actually a big thing. In the kingdom of God, little things like mustard seeds become big things, like a a tree that birds can roost in and live there. So this is one truth about the kingdom of God, that little things are really actually big things. And in the case of our words, how we what the words we use to describe our relationship with Jesus are like yeast in the dough. Whatever yeast we put in the dough, it's going to impact the loaf in the end, because that yeast is going to influence the whole loaf. And the words that we use to describe our relationship with Jesus influence the whole of the relationship. So I want us to slow down and pay attention to this particular word, and then you can think in terms of all of the words that we use to describe our relationship with Jesus, and do they match how Jesus sees our relationship, and are they truthful at their, at their, at their core? So... Where did this come from in the, in the first place? I just want God to use me, and, or God wants to use me for something. Where did this come from in the first place? We have to act like sort of like Sherlock Holmes and track down the roots of this, and how did this get started? And I asked my friend Ken Castor, who Ken and I uh, worked together to find and then create and produce the blue letters in the Old Testament of the Jesus-centered Bible— if you're not familiar, in the Jesus-centered Bible, we did something that, after the fact, we learned that had never been done before in the Old Testament. Ken and I spent about three weeks off and on, him living in my home, going through the Old Testament, looking for every place in the Old Testament that pointed to Jesus in some way. And then we highlighted those places with, with blue type, and then Ken and I wrote these little blue caption boxes next to each highlighted place to describe the connection. And we, there's about 700 of them in the Old Testament that the Jesus said in Bible. All of them create this sense that as you're reading the Old Testament, that you're always re- orbiting around Jesus, no matter where you are. Well, Ken is my favorite Bible nerd, and I couldn't have done that project in the Jesus-centered Bible without him, for sure. So I wrote him today, I emailed him today, and I said, hey, Ken, I've been trying to figure out I'm like a detective, where where did this whole thing start about God using me? Where do you think that the biblical roots of that came from? And just before we started recording today, he shot me back a note, and it was exactly what I needed. So the root, I think, and Ken agrees now, is in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 20 through 21. So this is obviously a, a letter from the Apostle Paul to his... Uh, the, 
the young man that he was mentoring in, in ministry named Timothy. And so this is his second letter to Timothy, and here's what he says to this his young protege. He says, "...in a wealthy home some utensils are made of gold and silver, and some are made of wood and clay." Well, the expensive utensils are used for special occasions, and the cheap ones, of course, are used for everyday use. If you keep yourself pure, you'll be a special utensil for honorable use. Your life will be clean, and you'll be ready for the Master to use you for every good work. So here is Paul using a metaphor, really trying to teach about purity to Timothy, and about his usefulness in the kingdom of God. And in order to use this metaphor, he has to continue it all the way into the human application of the metaphor, I guess is a way of saying it. And that means that he has to stick with the utensil meaning, which means it's a tool. And it's a tool that a person uses to either eat their food or prepare their food. So here's Paul teaching this metaphor about being used, and I think this is ground zero for where we got this idea that we are fundamentally like utensils, uh, inanimate objects in the hand of God, and he just wields them the way he wants to. Well, I think what we've done is we've way broadened Paul's point here into a uh, description of the relationship itself, and that's our mistake. So Paul is really trying to just simply make a hyperbolic point about what you gain if you stay pure. Let's shift gears here for a second, as we're in the on-ramp portion of this, and then we'll get into this in more depth, but let's shift gears to set the stage for that by paying attention to something Jesus says that launches a, a sort of a primary and colossal shift in our understanding of how we're to relate to God and how he relates to us. So Jesus came um, primarily to show us the heart of God, to give us a living, breathing, acting, speaking example of the heart of God, because up until this point, the relationship that the people of God had with him was hampered because they had no concrete experiences of him they had mystical experiences of him. Well, here is Jesus giving concrete experience to the heart of God, and Jesus wants to kind of correct some of the misplaced parameters that people have put around the relationship. I love, a few weeks ago, we talked to Thomas Christensen, who's the author of The Unreasonable Jesus. Again, we'll put a link to that book on our podcast page here. If you haven't already picked up The Unreasonable Jesus, it's a perfect companion to this podcast. And we were interviewing Thomas Christensen, the author of that book, and he used a great example of of, uh, what Jesus came to do and why Jesus was such a shocking, lightning rod kind of person that when we read about him in the Gospels, he compared the the history of human beings to a massive game of telephone, (laughs) where People are given a truth in a circle, and whispered the, the truth is whispered into one ear, and then you're supposed to pass it on to the next person in the circle, and then you then the last person to get the message around the circle then speaks out what they think the message was, and it's always all garbled and crazy and weird. It, it never turns out the way it started. So Thomas Christensen was using that metaphor to describe how we've slowly over history got it wrong about the heart of God, and, and how that happened as we pass it down from generation to generation. And here Jesus arrives on the scene, and he's here to recalibrate us 
and to help us understand what we didn't understand once the message got conveyed down through the generations. And so in John chapter 15, verses 12 through 16, here's how he recalibrates this whole thing and helps us to understand what our relationship with him is really like and what he's really after. He says, this is my commandment. I want you to love each other in the same way I have loved you. And then then he kind of lays that as the groundwork, and then he says, and here's the way that I've loved you. There's no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. Now, you are my friends if you do what I command. And here's the kicker. I no longer call you slaves, because a master doesn't confide in his slaves. Up until this point, his disciples have been often calling him master. They'd been using a word that defined the relationship in a certain way. And Jesus was trying to upend and recalibrate that understanding. So he says, I no longer call you slaves because a master doesn't confide in his slaves. And Jesus is implying here, I want to confide in you. I want you to know my heart as well as I know your heart. And then he continues, now you are my friends, since I've told you everything the Father told me. Now you didn't choose me, I chose you. So he's helping us to understand the reality, what's really going on here. He's saying, the kind of relationship that I'm after is an intimate friendship. And, oh, by the way, I not only want an intimate friendship, I'm pursuing you because I want you. You're not the pursuer primarily. I am. I delight in you. I treasure you. I'm coming after you. And by the way, just a little rabbit trail side note here, this primary uh, recalibration that Jesus is doing here from a, a relationship characterized by master to slave to a relationship characterized by intimate friends is really at the heart of a new resource that uh, we're just at the tail end of developing now. I've been on the development team for this. It's called Friends of God, a Discipleship Experience, and it's an entire discipleship experience, a 12-session experience that we've developed that is unlike any other, and it's built around this very shift that Jesus is talking about. What if a disciple is really a growing intimacy with Jesus, rather than someone who has collected a lot of, of head knowledge and head understanding about what the Christian life is like? What if instead discipleship is really about a deepening, intimate relationship with Jesus that produces fruit? So this Friends of God discipleship experience will be available uh, late summer, early fall, uh, so we'll tell you more about that as the months go on here, and we'll for sure let you know how you can get a hold of this if you'd like to uh, experiment with it in your church. I'm so excited about this. It's been about a year of development with this, and we've poured ourselves into this resource to try to replicate what Jesus is talking about here and give people a, a different kind of path into discipleship than they're used to. So there's the end of the rabbit trail. So here Jesus is making this big shift, and that means it's an invitation for us really to kind of slow down and pay, atten pay better attention to how Jesus is framing our relationship with him. So what are better ways to think about our relationship with Jesus, and therefore what are better ways to describe it and use words to describe it? So Jesus puts a lot of weight on defining and redefining this relationship he has with us. He uses lots of different metaphors. Let me give you a few. Now, think, I want you to think about 
what, what are some of the common denominators amongst the metaphors Jesus chooses to use to describe the kind of relationship he wants with us? He talks about the relationship being the one, the one that a bride and bridegroom have, and not on the wedding day, the wedding night. Or he talks about the kind of relationship that a shepherd who has already decided that he will die defending his sheep has with his sheep, the sheep that he names individually. He uses the metaphor of sheep and a shepherd, or he uses the metaphor of a branch and a vine, a branch that is a dying branch that will have no life in it unless it's intimately attached to the vine and grafted into it. Or he uses, as we've just said, the metaphor of a friend to a friend, but not just any kind of friendship, not an acquaintance friendship, not a, not a Facebook friend relationship, more like my best friend relationship, the most intimate kind of friendship that we can have. And he uses the metaphor of a parent to a child as well, another kind of intimate relationship that goes deep, goes past um, liking or not liking each other. It's, it's a kind of a permanent relationship that goes deep. So, I mean, as you can guess, to me, the, the common thread amongst all these is relational intimacy. That's what he's after in the end. And this is why using the phrase, God wants to use me, is so anathema to where Jesus wants to go with us, and why it also undermines the intimacy that he wants us to have. So he does not want transactional or servant-based He does not want us thinking in terms of our relationship with him in a transactional or servant-based way. He's made that clear. In fact, I I mentioned the sheep and shepherd relationship. Uh, It's interesting that the qualifier he makes there, he says some shepherds are just in it for the money. So when a real threat comes and they might die defending the sheep, they leave. They, They take off. He said, that's not the kind of shepherd I am. I'm all in. I'm going to lay down my life for you. No danger is going to get to you without crossing me, and I, and, and I am willing to risk my life on your behalf. I'm ferociously for you, is what he's trying to say. So I'm not that kind of hired hand that just runs off when things get tough. And he refuses to treat us as hired hands as well. He treats us as good shepherds as well. He wants us to be all in with him. He wants us to lay down our life for him in, in a mutually intimate relationship. So it's true that Jesus wants us to use our gifts and abilities, and he wants us to maximize who we are and what we have to give. But, so he wants us to use our gifts, but he never references using us. You see the difference? It's a huge difference, I think. Uh, we use our gifts, but he's not using us. So I'd like to kind of hone in on the difference this makes by reading you a little excerpt from Spiritual Grit, a book that's coming out in about a month. This is from a chapter. It's from chapter 5 in the book. It's called Changing Our Language, Changing Our Behavior. And I want to read you just the entry point of this chapter. Each one of these chapters deals with a, a different growth area of spiritual grit in our lives, and they're patterned after, each of them, a way that Jesus interacted with a particular person to help grow their grit. So each chapter begins with an encounter Jesus had with someone, and we take special note of how he's engaging this person to learn how he's growing their grit. 
So this chapter is called Changing Our Language, Changing Our Behavior, and the story that I start off with is from Matthew 9, uh, verses 1 through 8. It's where Jesus heals a paralyzed man. Let me just read the story to you. Jesus climbed into a boat and went back across the lake to his own town. Some people brought to him a paralyzed man on a mat. And seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, Be encouraged, my child, your sins are forgiven. But some of the teachers of religious law said to themselves, Hey, that's blasphemy. Does he think he's God? Well, Jesus knew what they were thinking, so he asked them, Why do you have such evil thoughts in your hearts? Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or stand up and walk? So I'll prove to you that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. And then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, Stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. And the man jumped up and went home. Fear swept through the crowd as they saw this happen, and they praised God for giving humans such authority. So, how does this story relate to a change in the way that we see our relationship with Jesus? Well, let me just read to you from the introduction part of this chapter that follows the story I just read to you. So, here we go. In Edmund Berkeley's classic parable, a traveler meets three bricklayers working on a scaffold. He asks the first, Hey, what are you doing? And the man answers without looking at the traveler, I'm earning a wage. Well, to the second bricklayer, the man repeats his question, What are you doing? And the second glances at the traveler and then shoots back, I'm building a wall. And then the traveler, persistent in his curiosity, asks the third bricklayer, And what are you doing? And the third man stops what he's doing and turns to respond, I am building a cathedral. Now, all three give accurate answers, but only the third bricklayer responds by defining his narrative in its epic context. All three are telling a story about their own lives, but only the third bricklayer is telling a true story. I don't mean that the first two are lying about what they're doing. They're simply not able or willing to see their stories for what they really are. All of us, no matter who we are or what we do, are living inside an epic narrative. That's because we've been invited into the family of God as adopted sons or daughters. And when we respond to that invitation, our adoption differs from its conventional meaning in one significant way. Born again of the Spirit means that we have the Trinity's spiritual DNA in us. Because our adoption involves a second birth, we are blood sons and daughters. Jesus says, I have given them the glory, or spiritual DNA, that you gave me. He says this to his father on the eve of his crucifixion. And why? So that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you are in me. And that's from John 17, 22 through 23. So as co-laborers in the family business of the Trinity, we are partners with Jesus in his mission to restore a trusting relationship between God and his creation. There is no more epic occupation in the world than this one. The story we think we're living, the one we learn to describe to ourselves and to others, will determine the breadth and depth of our influence in life. If we describe a small story version of our lives, one that disregards our true calling as warriors who participate with Jesus in setting captives free, we will confine our impact to the surface facts of our existence. We tell ourselves, oh, we're only earning a wage or building a wall. But if we intend to embrace the truth about our epic purpose, 
we'll need to change the way we describe our story. We'll know when others ask that our mission in life is building cathedrals, and we'll tell them so. The Gospel of John begins with this truth. The Word gave life to everything that was created, and His life brought light to everyone. That's in John 1, verse 4. John here is referencing the beginning of all things, when God spoke creation into being through His Word, who is Jesus. So when God speaks, what comes out of His mouth is Jesus. Likewise, the Genesis account of creation is driven by the power of the tongue. Quote, God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God said, let there be space between the waters, and that's what happened. And God said, let the waters beneath the sky flow together into one place, and that's what happened. And God said, let the land sprout with vegetation, and that's what happened. Again and again, God's words fashion our reality. And because we are created in His image, and our words also have creative power. They are the vanguard of our beliefs, and our beliefs form and shape our reality. If our words have the power to call forth reality in our lives, we must have greater respect for the story we're telling about ourselves and the story we're telling about others. We thwart the development of spiritual grit in our life when our words keep us captive to a small story, not the epic story Jesus is trying to tell. Okay, so that's the intro to this chapter, Changing Our uh, Language, Changing Our Behavior. And the point here that I'm trying to make is that our words matter, and we know that they matter because they matter to God. God literally creates everything that we know, including us, using His words. And because we are made in His image, we also create with our words. So we need to pay much better attention to the reality that we're creating with our words. You know, one example I like to use often is a favorite way that people like to say hello or goodbye today in our culture is, be safe, be safe. And for years now, I've been trying to help parents get off their addiction to the phrase, be safe, because those words are creating a reality around their kids, and they're painting a reality that says your safety is the most important thing in life. And actually, that's not true. Our courage is the most important thing in life. If, if we intend to help bring good impact into the world, and we want our kids to bring good impact into the world, be safe is not a Jesus-centered thing to say to them. In fact, Jesus never counseled his followers to be safe. It was exactly the opposite, actually. He wanted them to be bold and courageous. So our words do create a reality around ourselves and around others. So how do we change our language in order to change our behavior, which is the premise of that whole chapter of Spiritual Grit? Well, let me give you some, a few examples here to think about, just to chew on, as alternatives to uh, the, this idea that we're being used by God. So how do we describe our relationship with? So here are some of the ways that I try to replace the word use with something that more accurately describes the relationship. So I will say to somebody that I'm partnering with Jesus to do something, because it's very true that Jesus invites us to be partners with him in his mission. In fact, something that's fundamentally true about Jesus is that he doesn't do anything alone that he can do with us. That's why he calls us the body of Christ. He wants us to be intimately a part of everything he's doing. So 
when we partner with Jesus, we're really living out our role in his body. We're not, he's not using us any more than I use my hand for something. Actually, my hand is a part of me. It's not a separate tool. It's, it's an actual part of who I am, and that's how Jesus sees us. We are intimately attached to him. We are part of him. So another way you, that you could replace the word use with something else is, and I often say this as well, is that Jesus is moving through me. And that's true when I, uh, I especially think about this when I'm leading a group in some kind of growth experience, I will invite Jesus to move through me. Uh, another way of saying that is uh, one of my favorite metaphors for what my relationship with Jesus is really like. I tell my, I repeat this metaphor back to myself before I lead a, whenever I lead a group of people, I, I, usually in prayer, I say something like, Jesus, I just want to play jazz with you. I want to be invited into your band and to improvise music with you. I, I want to play my saxophone with you, and I want to—I I don't want to sound a bunch of wrong notes either. I, I want it to be enjoyable, creative, adventurous music. So please release me, free me from my own captivity so that I can be a player in your band. I want to improvise with you. So that's another way I describe what it's like to be in relationship with Jesus, is it's relational improvisation, <laughs> yeah, so that as, as, we move through our, as I move through my everyday life, that the Spirit in me is helping me to improvise what I do during my day in an intimate way. I'm dependent on Him, and we go back and forth about stuff. Well, for me, that a great metaphor for that is, is playing an instrument in an improvisational jazz band. So another way to say this is um, I want to lean into Jesus. Now, somebody on our Pigs page, which, by the way, our Pigs page is a special invitational Facebook page for those who love and listen to this podcast and who identify themselves as pigs, which comes from a, a metaphor I use in the book, The Jesus-Centered Life. It's a whole chapter called Living a Pig's Life, and it's, it's really referencing this metaphor of if you're preparing breakfast, the chicken might provide an egg for your breakfast. He might provide the chicken might provide some some aspect of them, but if you're having bacon with your breakfast, the pig has gone all in. The pig has given everything. So that's why the pig's page is called that. It's for people who want to be all in with Jesus. Well, somebody on the pig's page recently was using this language about what do you do when you're confronted with your own weakness with your own kryptonite, <laughs> to use a metaphor. And this person was using the, this phrase, I lean into Jesus over and over again, and I wrote a comment about what she said, and I said, I just love that, 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 that whole idea that I'm always leaning into Jesus, not leaning away from Him or running away from Him. When I get in the midst of my day, what is my relationship like with Him? Well, I'm leaning into Him. Kind of like the way John, who describes himself as the apostle that Jesus loved, at the, at the Last Supper, it says that John was leaning on Jesus. It's that kind of intimacy. So we want to lean into Jesus. Or another way of saying it is, when I want to live out who I am with Jesus. He is making me more myself every day. That's what he intends to do. As I lay down my life for him, he gives me back my life in the way that it was originally intended to be. So I want to live out who I really am with Jesus. Or another thing I say all the time is, I want to give what I have to give. Or I tell others, when I appreciate what they've given, I thank them by saying, 
thank you so much for giving what you have to give. Uh, that's another way to to frame this relationship in the giving of what we have that's valuable, is we're simply giving away what He's given us that is so valuable. So that those are a few examples of how to change the framework using our words to be more relationally accurate about what's happening here. Of course, there's other descriptions that you could kind of take the same way. It's not just the word use that we kind of misuse in the Church. There's lots of ways that we describe ourselves and our relationship with Jesus that aren't accurate to what He wants or the way He sees us. So, you know, here's just some descriptions of of who you really are from Jesus's perspective. So just pause for a second and take this in. This is how Jesus—these descriptions are how Jesus sees you. These are the most true things about who you are, that you're a fisher of men. And in that context, what it means is you weren't created for a small purpose. You were created for a great purpose. You may be small, but I take small things and make them big. And I intend for you not to just fish for fish your whole life, but to fish for men, to give you an epic purpose. I created you to have an epic purpose, is what he's saying. Or also, he says to us, you are salt and light and yeast, which means that you're a very small thing that makes a very huge difference in a large a large environment, that as you give what you have to give, as you partner with Jesus in any environment, the small thing that you have to give becomes a big thing, because that's just what he does. Or here's another thing that's true about you. Your faith is great. Look, there are so many things that are hidden and nobody will ever see that you have exercised great faith in, and Jesus just wants you to know he sees that. And his response to you is, wow, you have great faith. The number of times he said this to people who astonished him by their faith is remarkable. The one that just jumps out is when the centurion, the Roman soldier whose servant is dying and approaches Jesus and asks if he will heal his servant, and Jesus says, sure, I'll come to your house, and the centurion says, no, you don't even need to do that, I, you don't understand, I'm, I, I'm not even worthy for you to come in my house, but I'm a man under authority, I understand what you are, and so all you have to do is say the word, and I know my servant will be healed. And Jesus is astonished, and like, whoa, what great faith this pagan Roman soldier has. So he wants you to know that he also sees those hidden moments in your life where you have exercised great faith and nobody knows it. This is what he's saying to you. you have faith, your faith is great. He also says, you're a sheep among wolves, which uh, he, sent, he says, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. That's a crazy thing, because the sheep have no natural ability to fend off a predator like a wolf. So why would he send a sheep out amongst wolves? Well, first of all, he's telling us the brutal reality that, that there are wolves out there. But somehow, some way, because we are his sheep, we strike fear into the heart of those wolves. <laughs> that sheep goes out amongst the wolves, and the wolves cower, because inside that sheep is a, is a good shepherd, <laughs> or the good shepherd sent that sheep. So the wolves are actually frightened by us, is what Jesus is saying. That's how I'm sending you out. Or he also says these things that are at their core true about how he sees us. He tells us we're precious. He says, you see these sparrows? Do you think any one of them falls to the ground without my Father knowing it? Or what about the hairs on your head? Did you know he's numbered the hairs on your head? He's trying to communicate how precious we are to him. 
how infinitely precious we are to him. He also tells us we are fundamentally forgiven. He, he wants us to know that the thing that has broken us, the thing that has separated us from him, he has forgiven. And it's not just that we have a sin that's forgiven, that we are people who are forgiven. That's our status in life, forgiven people. And the last one, just to throw it out, this is the other side of the coin from you, that you're precious, that you're a treasure, that Jesus tries to convey over and over again to his friends, I treasure you, I delight in you, you are remarkable to me, you are fearfully and wonderfully made, and I recognize it, because I treat you like a treasure. You may not feel like a treasure most days. I, I know I don't feel like a treasure many days, but that doesn't, um, that doesn't betray the truth of what Jesus's perspective is, which is, well, you may not feel like it, but I know what's true. You are a treasure, and I know it because I know a treasure when I see one. All right, gang, so here's your challenge. I want to plant this challenge in you that when you hear yourself say, Jesus, just use me, or God, I hope you use me, I want you to challenge yourself to stop, backtrack a little bit, and figure out a new way to say that, either to Jesus or to whoever it is you're talking to. Don't be embarrassed. Just stop, backtrack, and think of a better way to say that. Um, Partnering, moving through, leaning into, living out, giving what I have to give, any of those things work. Just backtrack and start getting yourself used to saying this in a different way. This will be like riding a bike, like anything else. It's going to feel weird and awkward, like you're going to fall off at any moment in the beginning. But once you've done it and continue to do it, it'll become like second nature to you. And then your words are going to be creating your reality. They will plant in you an expectation of relationship that's different than you had before. So there's my challenge to you for this week. Hey, gang, thanks for listening. Remember, you can find out more information, but in further detail about all of this on PainRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. Just find our podcast section there, and you're looking for Season 3, Episode 14. And uh, don't forget, I mentioned that there, there's also a link on that page if you would like to join the launch team for Spiritual Grit. Now's the time to do it, because we're, we're giving away some stuff that no one else in the universe is going to get, not only in advance of the book's release, but for that group only as well. There's a chapter in the book that I had to I worked long and hard on, and I had to take out eventually. It just, in the end, just didn't fit. It, it disrupted the flow of the book, so I had to take it out. I'm going to give this group, the launch group, group, that chapter of the book in a, in a week or two, and no one else is ever, ever going to read that except for you guys and me. <laughs> so it's actually a, a really—I I love this chapter. It's all about Peter and the development of his grit. So that we're also going to give that away on that page. So if you want to join up— just uh, go to PainRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com, and you'll find our podcast section, and you'll see a link to how to join. So you can also subscribe to us on iTunes for all the latest podcasts, and I recommend it so that they're, uh, you'd never miss one. And gang, we'll talk again next week. Uh, next week, we'll have the Beckinator with us, uh, rejoining us, so we're looking forward to that. See you then.